That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Adeljabar. What's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing I'm doing okay. So did you hear about Vladimir Putin wants to clone ancient horse lords, the Thraki? <laughs> yes, I did hear about that, and, and it is fucking fascinating. And I can't wait to talk about it. <laughs> so the Russian government, and I'm really surprised that Rachel Maddow hasn't picked this up yet, but the Russian government, they're planning on cloning Dothraki warriors from Game of Thrones right? and amassing them on the border of Russia and Ukraine so they can go in and they can uh, start raping and pillaging the Ukraine. Well, and the, that, that Dothraki horde is going to... Uh, tear through Ukraine, and then it's going to hit, um, you know, countries like Lithuania and Estonia, and make it all the way to Western Europe, where they uh, are one army. And hopefully, they don't actually link up with the Unsullied warriors with the Daenerys Targaryen, because then that will. I don't be think it's going to go issue. down that way, man. I honestly, I honestly think it, you're, you're. I mean, the Dothraki horse warriors were great, but right now, I mean, like. Yeah, you saw the the final battle with the Dothraki. They're basically just cannon fodder, right? They're going to rush out just like they did at that final battle, right? Poor and, leadership. Yeah, just poor leadership. They're just going to rush out into Ukraine. They're going to get mowed down by American weapons, and then and then the Russians will step in later. You know, it's just cannon fodder. Well, well, you're underestimating them because they have the ability to regenerate. Because. That episode, the long night or battle of Winterfell, yeah, the, when yeah. they all seem to have perished in some misguided charge with flame swords. <laughs> Seriously. Just terrible tactics, by the way, the way that they line that up. If you guys know that episode of Game of Thrones, possibly the worst display of medieval tactics I think has ever been The worst presented. display of military tactics. Military period. ever, ever. Yeah. It, it was just... You could have found one dork on YouTube who could have thought of a better way to do that. A better battle episode. plan against but, the whites. Yeah. Um, they, you know, even though they all seem to have perished in the very beginning of that battle, they seem to have uh, revived right before they them. sacked King's Landing. Yeah, at least some of they them. All, they all they they were all there. Like they seemed <laughs> like they were back. They were back. Yep. So I think that you underestimate that ability. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so uh, not story? to get too <laughs> off track yeah. on that. Um, yeah. So one of our listeners, where, where we're going with this, one of our, our listeners uh, shared this this article on Twitter with me, and um, he was like, hey, this is going to be really up your alley. And I was like, yeah, you're right. This is, this is definitely something that we'd be 
interested in speaking about yep when um, you sent it to me like i just read the title and i'm like yep let's do it i didn't even, i didn't read a single thing about it i was like just title alone i'm like i'm interested let's do yeah. it and it's the perfect story that lives in the crossroads of what we talk about and mm-hmm. it's it, it basically sits in the intersection between you know modern global politics um ancient civilizations and then um add fringe propaganda to that as well so in the Russian Republic of Tuva, which is in southern Siberia, there have been these um, archaeological excavations. Um, Tuva in the past was, and still is, is home to... The Republic um, of Tuva, that is. Yeah, the Republic of Tuva is home to, I guess, the descendants of their, of nomadic-type people. It's more Asiatic and less Slavic-looking, the people who live there. Mm-hmm. And this... This area was ruled by by Mongols for a long time, and it was also part of China for a couple of hundred years. Tuva actually didn't become part of Russia until like around the 20th century, the early right. 20th century, right like prior to World War One. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But these excavations that are going on are of these tombs of Scythian royalty. Yep. And this article was just released from um, ancientorigins.com, and it seems to have been syndicated to some other outlets as well. Um, Dailymail.co.uk. Daily Mail. <laughs> Daily Mail is like the fourth, the fourth largest newspaper in England. I know, but I hate their website. It's just so riddled with ads, and they make you disable your, your ad blocker to read it. And that was one of the, the better versions of this particular article was on Daily Mail. It was a shitty. It's a shitty website. It's the yeah, shittiest made website, and I hate it. It it angers me every time I have to go on it. I know it's and then shame like, on you, Daily Mail. The Owler thing and the the whatever those uh, applications that just shove sh- like ads down your face. It's just every. It's like the the actual reading space is about like maybe. 25% of the actual screen and the rest of it is just nonsense links and like junk and like ads and just nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Annoying. It's it's like, look at this. They always have that like, you won't believe, you will not believe what <laughs> yeah. this child star will look like now. Right. It's always some shit like that. Like, oh my God, you will be struck by how beautiful this child is they're always like right. weird creepy stuff like that it's too. like top 10 you know uh nipple slips in sports <laughs> or some stupid shit like that you know it's like something dumb all the time this person smoked meth for a day see what she looks like 13 day 13 years later yeah and like 37 clicks later you get like a two-sentence story <laughs> yeah um, and then by the time you're done reading that, like your computer has needs AIDS. to be repaired. Like yeah. it's done. <laughs> yeah. You're, it's broken. Yeah. Um, all right. So the story is called, uh, Russia wants to clone ancient Scythian warriors. And, um, I'll just go through it right now. It's not too long. So, uh, Russia's defense minister has announced his plan for the DNA cloning of ancient Siberian warriors and their horses. The ancient Tunic burial site located in the Valley of the Kings in the Republic of Tuva in Siberia holds the remains of 3,000-year-old Scythian warriors. So um, the Scythians are a group of ancient tribes of nomadic warrior-type people who are, um, just a quick synopsis, we're going to dive deeper into them in this show, yep. but quick synopsis, they are a warrior-like people 
that existed between 900 BC and 200 BC. And they're basically known for clashing with every single civilization that existed in that time period that we know about in the in the Near East. So they yep. clashed with the Persians, they clashed with the Assyrians, they clashed with the Greeks, Greeks they clashed yep. with the Macedonians, mm-hmm. they clashed with everyone. Yep. Um, part part of that was just like their their location, though. <laughs> they just yeah. happened to be in that like you know crossroads in that marchland, if you will. But, exactly. Yeah. And they're just, you know, they're known as kind of disruptors in history. They're like the precursors to the Mongols mm-hmm. is a good way to think about them. Yep. So to go on with this article, now Sergei Shigoy, Russia's defense minister and one of Vladimir Putin's closest advisors. Um, Sergei Shigoy is actually from Tuva. He's half um, Russian or half and, and um, his mother, I think, or no, his father He's half Tuvan or Tuvanese, or I don't know what the, mm, the correct what term is. What they call is. themselves. I heard he's like best boys with Putin, though. Like, they're they're like real tight. Yeah, it's one of his clothes. He's been around forever. He's been a, a, up on the upper uh, cabinets there for a real long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at him, he looks like he's half Asiatic. You know, he, he looks less Slavic. He's from there. So maybe this explains, you know, maybe some of the fascination with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has disclosed his desire to use DNA cloning to recreate recreate an army of noble warriors. However, is this story perhaps a high-level cover-up of the mass the signals of impending war? All right. So I, I, <laughs> I think this is a little bit stretchy because he didn't specifically say this, but I'll let you continue. But... It's very, very strange. So, um, basically, the art, the crux of the article is that the Russians are trying to create this clone-like army, like in Star Wars. Yep. <laughs> yep. Which is just a wild accusation based so, off. What so they're we're bringing get back to. Jango Fets. It's like they're crossing Star Wars and and. Uh, and uh, Game of Thrones, right? Instead of yeah. cloning Jango Fett, they're uh, they're they're cloning uh, the Dothrakis. Yeah, they're cloning the Caldrogos. A bunch of Caldrogos. So archaeologists have been excavating the Tuva burial mound known as Arjan II since 1998, and a team of Russian and German archaeologists began excavating graves and tombs in the so-called Valley of the Kings in 2001. Mm-hmm. Now a Russian-Swiss archaeological team is being tasked with finding samples for DNA cloning of an army of warriors. An army of warriors. Or Game warrior. over, man. <laughs> Game over, man. Oh, Jesus. What the fuck what are we, we going to do, do now? Game over. Uh-oh. Um, you ever see Aliens? Yeah. Bill Paxton. Game over, man. Game <laughs> over. What the fuck are we going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, they're being tasked with to get these DNA cloning of army war- army warriors. Um, an article in the Daily Mail explains that ancient tunic burial sites contains 3,000-year-old nomadic warriors which were often laid to rest with their horses. Sergei Shigoy is from the Republic of Tuva, and he recently spoke about the potential of the extra door... Extra- Extraordinary, extraordinary, three thousand year old Scythian burials in the Valley of the Kings. The controversial bit is that this potential he talks 
of its sample of is to sample 3,000 year old Scythian DNA so the military so that military scientists can re- recreate an ancient army of advanced warriors. Okay, stop there for a second. He didn't specifically say this, so I think they're definitely, definitely stretching this. Like some, they paid somebody. They didn't at, say he didn't say anything like that. Yeah, he didn't say anything <laughs> like this. All like, he said was, "This I'll is quote him. Let, let's quote him real fast. Hold on, because but then let's go back to that next point after that because that's my favorite part of it, um, which is here. Uh, but uh, so, what did he exactly say? Uh, he said. Mm. He said it would be possible to make, speaking about the DNA samples that he could potentially get from the mummies that they find, he said it would be very possible to make something of it, if not Dolly the sheep. And he also said, in general, it will be very interesting. None of that said anything about making uh, like a race of super soldier Scythian Russians. There's not, <laughs> like that is a leap, a hop, skip, and a jump. You know, a, a giant leap forward from that one particular thing, but it is an interesting uh, thing to say. It makes uh, for interesting content, at least. Yeah, it's, it that it's, way. Speaking of interesting content, this next bit I really like a lot. So this this part of the article I, I thought was hilarious. Yeah, according to the report in the Unilad three years ago, when um, Shoigu initiated the Russian-Swiss archaeological digs. He called in a quote modern day shaman, so as the excavations did not anger the spirits because god forbid you know when we're trying to make our russian scythian clones we anger the spirits <laughs> well that's that'll, just that'll be the courtesy. undoing you know <laughs> that's common that's common courtesy like if you're digging up body if you're digging up remains of people who are laid to rest archaeologists let when they're when they're in um when they're digging up sites and they discover burial grounds, um, and then they figure out where like tombs are or where people, you know, if they'll find a symbol and like, oh, that's a, that's clearly a tomb here, they'll stop poking at in those areas because they don't want to, they don't want to dig up dead bodies. That's they know it's kind of disrespectful. And no, little... they do want to dig up dead no, bodies. <laughs> I know, but they 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 don't want to dig up all of them. You know what I mean? Like. They want to get one of them, but they don't want to continuously just like dig up all these people who are laid to rest once they figure know. out I, like the pattern think, of where they I lay. I think there's a there's a fine line between or at least some being of them respectful are. of the dead and you know like engaging in some you know hokey pokey shamanism something or the other. Well, they got not the to, shaman to, you know not they, to... they're gonna dig them up <laughs> like <laughs> like they know that it's disrespectful, so they need to take the um precautions of getting some type of uh somebody yep. who can speak with the spirits to the, prevent and them from being therein haunted. lies like that's what i find like odd because archaeologists are scientists they are they are like historians you know what, what place does this you know this isn't fucking raiders of the lost ark you know this isn't you know this <laughs> that's not a thing <laughs> I'm sorry. I <laughs> I don't. I under <laughs> I understand why they're doing that. They might as well get some type of, I don't know. At the very least, to, to symbolize showing respect, because at least you can say like, "Hey, look, so we're we're showing the bodies respect." So we have, you know, we got this guy who wears like, um, a necklace full of teeth and stuff, <laughs> chanting some mumbo jumbo over the body. So. Arise, you know, a tree Arise. doesn't fall on them or something and they're asleep. So, um, all right. 
last Wednesday, Zvezda TV said the Russian defense chief told an online session of the Russian Geographical Society, which was attended by Putin, of course, we would like to very much find the organic matter, and I believe you understand that would follow what would follow that. The defense chief added that the burials were discovered in permafrost, which should have preserved organic matter. Therefore, it would be possible to make something of it, if not Dolly the sheep, added mm-hmm. Shuboy. He was, of course, referring to Scotland's July 1996 announcement that a female domestic sheep, Dolly, was the first mammal cloned from an adult somatic cell using the process of nuclear transfer. Let me try to put this whole story into perspective without getting myself into trouble. According to a 2017 PBS report, Russia's propaganda machine... Okay, this just goes on to say some goofy stuff. Let me read the last sentence because it's so cringy. Considering Russia's propaganda machine, let's now return to the session last Wednesday under normal circumstances in other countries apart from China. Yet would have thought Shigoi would have been mentioned Russia's recent deployment of almost 100,000 troops to the Ukrainian border. With the world's media watching, Russia fearing an impending war, the man who presses the big red buttons only talked about resurrecting an army of ancient Scythian warriors. This means one thing. It's time for Ukrainians to run for the hills. Cringe. (laughs) Cringe. um, So... It's a fun little um, article um, that kind of is obviously incredibly conspiratorial and jumps right. to conclusions that you know probably really aren't real. Right. Um, it is kind of akin to like veterans today type <laughs> type yeah. nonsense. A little bit, yeah. Um, it is funny. I kind of appreciate little goofy articles like that, mm-hmm. and I don't think any reasonable person could, in fact, take that seriously. That they're actually trying to clone a uh, army of ancient peoples to, you know, somehow have some type of military advantage because. You know, clearly, most likely, that wouldn't give you any type of military advantage in no. a practical sense. <laughs> like, no, you like don't suddenly most... clone them and they don't all, all, all of a sudden remember their past and like, oh yeah, I remember how to ride oh. a horse and shoot fucking poison. <laughs> They're not going to descend from the ground. Like, <laughs> imagine if necromancy. The, the shaman is like, <laughs> see, that's they why they needed the shaman because they're they're. It's not cloning; it's necromancy. They're rising them from the dead. That's what they... <laughs> and they take, like, a horse. They cut open a horse, and they, like, sprinkle the horse blood over this mount. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah. Hoy, 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 yeah. Hoy, yeah. And then no. all of a sudden, like, a storm comes, and then all you see these hands just pop up yeah, out of the of ground, like yeah. a pet cemetery. <laughs> yep. So all these hands just start popping out. Yep. And it's like... Hoy, oh, and then they come out, and then... And then they hand these, them all... Kalishnikovs, <laughs> and they and send horse. them to Ukraine, and they go. They march straight to Ukraine in like a yep. slow march, like Game yep. of Thrones style White Walkers that slowly come down. Yep. It takes a whole season for them to get there. It, took a whole, it takes a whole season, and then when yep. it comes down, you know they're defeated in a very unclimactic way with yep. some you know fifteen year old girl stabbing it in the heart when that I whole. Mean, I, I think you, you kind of pointed this out. This is like this article is obviously clickbait, right? And what what really 
What really kind of bothered me about this clickbait is that it's like not even close to believable. Because, you know, first of all, cloning is a touchy subject all across the world, like in general, just cloning anything, including a sheep, you know? Um, But human cloning is like another, like, like if this were, if he were serious, right? If Russia was serious about cloning anyone, any, any human being at all, but never mind, you know, ancient Scythian warriors. If there were like even coming close to this, this would be much bigger news and it would be a different type of news. It'd be, it'd be like a, like a ethical or scientific debate about whether or not we should clone human beings, you know, let alone whether or not cloning ancient human beings could be used for military purposes. You know what I mean? So it's like they just went too, too far on the unbelievableness, which is why I found it just so absolutely, you know, just ridiculous, you know? Uh, like if you wanted to make a more believable story, if I were, if I were doing this, I'd be like, I would just stop at their thinking about doing cloning, you know, or they're thinking about, uh, uh, you know, using the genetic information that they find to like justify their, you know, claim to a certain land because of like DNA evidence or something like that. Like that would be a more believable clickbait, you know, this just seems like. Just, well, the clickbait worked because we're we're talking about it and we're promoting it. So, right, if, right. If no, somebody like, who some people are going to be like, okay, oh, let me look at this shit. Mm-hmm. And they're going to type in in Google Russia cloning, and then they're going to um, get all the ad money. So and they're going to and they're going to make money. Winning. So in that yeah. sense, it, it was successful, and we're dedic- and we're launch we're using this as a launch to talk about our topic anyway. Right. So yeah, um, it what it was a successful uh, article in terms of what they were doing. Um, but yeah, obviously for any sane person, it's not something that they're, I don't think any, anyone who reads this will come off thinking that, you know, this is like some type of security threat to the world that, (laughs) that they're, 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 they're recreating these old ancient warriors, you know, weren't there, I am no expert on cloning, um, but no, Weren't there a lot of mistakes when it came to making Dolly? Like, since you know, all I mean, the different... I'm fairly certain Dolly was sterile, meaning like Dolly couldn't reproduce. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the moral, because I, I guess they they cloned Dolly from the nuclear whatever process fusion process. Well, not, not to be confused with like nuclear power, nu- like a nucleus, you know, nucleus. The nucleus of. Of a uh, of a sheep's of Dolly the sheep's you know embryo, and then they basically did some fancy fucking science shit and was able to figure out a way how to uh, inject the genetic material of itself into its own embryo, thus creating a perfect copy of itself. And then, since Dolly uh, Dolly's mother was a, a female, it was able to then carry that that cloned version of itself to term well isn't one of the big moral dilemmas with cloning uh, ancient peoples is that we know that there's going to be mistakes made in that process and well it's, going- it's not even just exclusive to ancient people like i was saying before it 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 this would extend to cloning anyone you know like yeah. if, if we want to especially clone you, especially you know, ancient or- people like, you know, there's a debate in a science. I don't know how serious a debate is, but there's a debate about cloning Neanderthals because we mm-hmm. could probably do it, but it would – we don't have the nucleus that it would require to um, 
we'd have to do it by a lot of experimentation, like how when um, yeah, and then there's ethical like issues with that because you know you might need to terminate a bunch of like unviable, you know, clones. You'd have yeah, and you'd have a Neanderthal that you know. We're, we're not talking about you... like like aborting a fetus. We're talking about like maybe it it is it is like quote born, but it's like fucked up in many ways. And then you yeah, it had, do you, you let know, it, it suffer or do you euthanize it? You know, and then that's like the ethno- ethical questions around it. You know, and then we don't know what physical uh, or you know what their intellectual power will be um, versus like a Homo sapien. You know, whether they'll be smarter or if they're considered mentally retarded by our standards, um, or if they you know, are considered to have there some could also type be of- biological concerns, right? Maybe they they are, you know, uh, um, they could be harbingers of disease, right? Uh, or perhaps you know they could be extremely susceptible to our diseases, which is probably more true. And then they just die pretty much immediately, you know. So again, there's a million ethical concerns about cloning in general. And I think one of the more interesting ones is like, you know, in the same region, they're trying to like get mammoth um, DNA and like clone a mammoth with Asian elephants and like try to bring back the woolly mammoth, you know, but the same same set of, of you know, issues is present. But, you know, on the other side of that argument there, uh, you know, it's it's possible that we could utilize cloning technology to unextinct animals that we are artificially driving extinct you know like the white rhino as an example just recently went extinct we could maybe bring them back you know or you know the dodo bird apparently those fuckers were tasty you know <laughs> so uh you know there there could be ways for us to to you know bring back ecosystems by using cloning technology but you know again this is all a, like a wild ethical and scientific debate that's going you know they on. made a movie about this about what? About what, what we're topic? talking about? Really? I didn't know that. What was that? Jurassic Park? Yeah. <laughs> Life finds a way. Um, yeah, it was a it was a big hit back in the day. Yep. Well, the first one was good. I don't know. What's your opinion on Jurassic Park beyond the first one? I find them all entertaining in their own respects, but none of them will live up to the first one. Yeah, I agree. Um, well... What we thought this was a good um, reason to talk about this, you know, it's, it's a silly thing. Um, not just to talk about cloning, but to kind of use this as a jumping off pad to talk about um, the, the the story of Russian history. Because we've been wanting right. to do, um, you know, we, we did a podcast on the, Jap- on, on the history of Japan. Um, I think it was a six-part series or seven-part mm-hmm. series. And we wanted to do a similar thing with Russia. And um, we're going to do it a similar format. We're not going to do it straight like we did before, just like seven continuous episodes of, of Japan. We're going to like kind of fit them in between. But we wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about, you know, who the hell was living in Russia thousands of years ago? <clears throat> right. Kind of like because ancient. that's a very unclear yeah. thing. Yeah. I, you know, we always assume that nation states are um constant. existed in perpetuity right? yeah they existed in perpetuity that their lineage goes back many thousands of years so when you say hey what was ancient russia like or what was russia like um you know two thousand years ago and you're like okay well what what were the ancient russians like well what did ancient you know there wasn't a russia Come to find out that there wasn't 
There wasn't Russia. such thing as a Russia, you know, the construct or a of Russian people, Russia yeah. or the Russian people. Something is something that existed many, 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 or excuse me, not really that long ago compared to right. um, written, you know, compared to written history or the time of the written history. And I want to talk, jump this off about talking about the step, because I think it's a really important concept to understand what the step is. And um, people who listen to Dan Carlin and this is how I originally learned about this stuff through Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scythians are someone he he he's always talking about the blood sucking Scythians. You know, he'll. Mm-hmm. It, I think this kind of steered into my brain. And these people lived on the step, which was a this incredibly open grassland that runs from Mongolia to Manchuria, um, pretty much through Central Asia, and then it extends out to the westwards to, to the Hungarian plains, the great Hungarian plains. Right. And this is a type of landscape that is that is just, just vast and wide open. Like, think of the great plains in the United States. It's just wide open and... Or the Dothraki Plains. Or the Dothraki Plains, the great glass, the the, the great grassland. Mm-hmm. You know, isn't it kind of funny that to teach, or we're not, I don't, I don't want to say we're teaching, but to like reference history, Game of Thrones is like something that's more relevant, and people know more stuff about Game of Thrones than actual history. It's a useful tool, man. It's a very useful tool. Well, that's because George R. R. Martin, he based a lot of game of thrones or the ballad or uh song of ice and fire Mm -hmm. off things from real history History. you know he Mm -hmm. so the um dothraki are kind of like an out they're a combination of the mongolians and the scythians and the and the huns like these people Mm -hmm. who lived in but also the native americans and things like that yeah yeah like he combined that that's what they're based off of they're mm-hmm. supposed to represent these nomadic horse warrior people that, you know, were traveling in these large plains and were really scary and would clash with these these civilized, um, you know, these pockets of civilization. It's not now, a terrible way to think of this, you know. I think it's a it's a helpful, useful tool, but it's not. It's obviously, you know, the the real history is not exactly. They're not exactly they're rocky, but it's it's a it's a helpful starting point. Yeah, it is. There, it is a helpful starting point. Um, but what makes people, and um, you know, I, I think what ultimately kind of steers a culture um, to, to the way it is is the geography. You know, what where right. where do they live, and what kind of conditions do people have to live off of or live in? And we talked a lot about this actually in our uh, on our episodes of Ancient China and how like the geography kind of dictates the types of people and the cultures and and like how they live. Uh, just just based around the geography, a lot of that has you know direct influence over that. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Yeah, and the step is is like the major influence on on this type of nomadic culture because there's you, you, this is not a place where you settle. You know, there's nothing to really settle on. You know, there's not like these rivers or these little cradle pockets that you're going to want to settle on. It's a place that just inspires movement. And the Scythians are one of these nomadic people that were always on the move. And Mm -hmm. what else, what's also a, um, something that's native to the steppe are are horses. Like this is a natural environment for horses. Something that's interesting, and I got to really, I have to repost this. I think I'll repost this for our Patreons after this because I think it would be kind of a nice, um, kind of a supplementary podcast to us but when i first started when we first started doing bro history um i had an interview with dan flores dan flores oh yeah i did an interview with dan flores and something that he something that dan flores told me or what's in his book is that horses were actually native to the united states not the united states but they were native to the americas because we all you know the story of horses in america we all tend to think that we brought them over on ships and we shit. brought them over on ships from Europe but actually horses were first native to um, you know the the Great Plains in, in the Americas and they actually traveled and migrated to Europe when we were all connected and then they they went extinct in the Americas and then they came back from Europe mm-hmm. so it's kind of an interesting um, evolution of that so you have this open landscape you have horseback people and um this this kind of sense of of uh constantly moving around and um another thing to add is that this place is really easy to get from one place to another oh yeah so Wide open spaces i was listening to this lecture by a archaeologist named um barry cuncliffe and um the way that he explained it is that if you go, if you got on your horse in the Great Hungarian Plain at the beginning of spring, you, and if you were traveling at a very normal rate eastwards, you would end up in Mongolia before winter. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about traveling a really long distance um, in a in a very in a in a period of about six or you know five to six months. Right on a horse. On a horse. We're talking thousands and thousands of miles, though, like just for context. Yeah. So you're able to get from place to place very travel different land from landscape to landscape very quickly, right? Because you're not crossing mountains and shit. Yeah, <laughs> no. there's nothing in the way. There's just a few river valleys, and that's it. And another thing that he was talking about in this in this lecture was the gradient, the step gradient, which 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 was mm-hmm. real interesting. 
Um, essentially, it's weather from the west. It would come across the Atlantic Ocean and bring moisture. And as weather moved east, it would gradually drop its moisture. So ultimately what you get in the western steppe, you would get these green pastures. So um, the great Hungarian plains in the, in the Pontic steppe in Europe. It's like this you know, beautiful green pastures. And then on the flip side, on the east, the further east that you go, you get these um, drier, colder steppes. So, for mm-hmm. example, the Mongolian steppe, where you know where the the Great Horde was from, their native steppe was very dry and very cold. So there's this tendency tendency to always be moving to the west if you're from the east. Yeah, for greener pastures, that's where that comes. Literally, from. the grass is mm-hmm. greener on the other side. Mm-hmm. So you get this flow of people over thousands and thousands of years who are going from east to west. Right. And ultimately, all these horse people, they would always end up, they would end their journey in in the great Hungarian plains, the last very edge of the steppe, because these are horse people, and unless they kind of assimilate into some other civilization, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're not able to really thrive in another environment. Mm-hmm. Also, there's like some natural boundaries that'll prevent them from moving easily with just their horses. Yeah, well, that's exactly. So they can't really they can't really go anymore when it starts getting more wooded and there's more fo- rivers and mm-hmm. you know mountains and then Western, there's also like seas and shit. You know, so like yeah, like Western, a natural stopping point. Yeah, like Western Europe, there's a lot more. Uh, the geography is a lot more conducive to you know creating like these larger metropolises. You know, the reason why Paris was such a great city is because it's by a bunch of rivers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's able to connect different parts in the country and become this centralized hub. Um, so they they stop when, they, when the step runs out. Right. Um, now, in the Altea Mountains which is a mountain chain located where Russia, China, Mongolia, and Kazakhstan all meet. Um, you start. This is where you start seeing these predatory-type nomads, the Scythian-type people who originated from this area. Yeah. And, and what? Go ahead. Yeah, and the, these Scythian, these more aggressive ones are you know the ones who spread out across other areas and started conquering shit yeah um and 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 i think we should probably pull it back for a second just talk about the scythians because you know like this this whole bit is like you know started about how the russians are trying to clone the scythians and 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 the scythians are a steppe people but i think they're pretty fucking fascinating in general so i think it might be worth just like looking at them specifically so you know you kind of pointed out already that there are nomadic people that ranged on that eurasian steppe uh, just as a reminder, they're they're estimated to have been around around the ninth century BC to the fourth century BC, but they really came up in the historical record, uh, you know, around the time of Herodotus in the eighth century BC. And Herodotus, bring it back, uh, Herodotus. Yeah, we're we're always going back to Herodotus. It's so our favorite like, historian, our favorite historian to talk about on this podcast, and 
man, this guy really him and Plutarch, just, you know, <laughs> him and Plutarch. But man, Herodotus has just—I mean, he's called the father of history for a reason. The right. fact that we reference him in like half of our episodes about something. Yeah, I mean, anytime we're going to dip into the ancient, you know, ancient history of something, we're probably talking about Herodotus, and and you know, he's troubling source to be honest he, he's for the scythians he's probably one of the only sources to be honest and we'll talk about that in a second but um you know herodotus has four separate possible origin stories for the scythians in his writings um but really three of them are trash and one of them is probably right uh so i'll tell you all three i'll, I'll start with the trash ones and then i'll tell you the one that that probably makes the most sense um so the first one the Scythian legend, it's a Scythian legend about themselves where uh, their first king, some guy named uh, Targetaus, uh, apparently he was the child of the, quote, sky god and the daughter of, um, and, and a daughter of the Dnieper, which is a river near Smolensk, Russia, which, fun fact, not too far away from Pogorov, where Russia is amassing troops, by the way. Um, so apparently he's a, He's, he's a they started from a sky god and a river that's where they come from according to one of herodotus's legends that he's just uh, he's repeating a scythian legend about themselves which is obviously like you know it's akin with a lot of the other creation myths that we've talked about on the on the show you know from you know ancient egypt or you know even sumeria or japan or or China, or literally anywhere where they're just talking about some kind of, like, you know, divine you know, heritage. So, clearly not a historical record. Um, another one, uh, he got this from a Pontic Greek legend. Uh, so, so, stories that the Greeks were telling about Scythia. Uh, and they told about a story of a different first king of Scythia. And his name was Scythes. Um, and apparently he was the child of Hercules and a monster named Echidna, who was like a snake woman thing who lived in a cave. So I don't really know how, <laughs> I don't know why, uh, Hercules put his, uh, put his dick in that, but apparently that's where Scythia comes from. And also probably why they're so nasty because, you know, they're strong like Hercules, but they're also a monster like Echidna. It's weird, weird story. You know, it's funny um, because I was actually, uh, I Wikipedia searched Hercules the show today, the 90s uh-huh. show. I don't know what made me think of it, but I was, I don't know. You I were thinking about that? Those. Yeah. Well, apparently Every once in a while I start thinking about um, Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess for some reason in the shows that came out of that time period. <laughs> Kevin Sorbo, that was the that was the peak of his, his, of his career. That's how I right got there. there because I saw Kevin Sorbo on Twitter. I got. I saw Kevin Sorbo on Twitter. That's how I uh, fell in that rabbit hole. And I, was I like, almost Kevin don't even Sorbo. want to know what he's talking about on on Twitter. I feel like I'll be disappointed. Um, what with Kevin Sorbo? You're <laughs> not that he like talks. What, you're not going to like it, like his takes. I'll just I'll spoil. I'll I'll spoil it for you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just not going to read that because that'll ruin my childhood because I remember watching him. Don't do what I do, man. I don't read any things. I, I try to stay away from celebrities and what they say because I don't mm-hmm. want like the sh- – if I yeah, like don't a want show or something, to, to ruin it. Yeah. I don't want their politics to make me – To ruin the them, show. To ruin the show. So I just <laughs> I stay yeah. away. I feel that. 
Anyway, here's here's another story um, from Herodotus about the Scythians. Uh, so this one, apparently, he got this from a Greek bard who traveled through the area, through the steppe. Uh, and apparently this bard said that they, the, the Scythians, originally lived in the south of what's known today as the Ural Mountains in Russia. And then they got into beef with like another Central Asian tribe uh, that were probably cannibals. Uh, and also got into beef with some like one-eyed cyclops people who fought with griffins uh that story is super fucking weird i don't know what to make of that one um like you had me up until you know the one-eyed cyclops people uh (laughs) but um apparently there was some beef with them and that's that's where they came from i don't know uh but the most believable story and the, the most probable one and admittedly the one that herodotus believes the most uh was uh, that they probably came from a southern part of Central Asia, and there was a war with a another powerful steppe tribe who lived in the northeast of Persia and basically forced them to migrate west uh, because they weren't able to uh, fight with them. And then, yeah, that's that's you know, they all conglomerated towards the west and became what what would be known today as as Scythian. But like the whole story, the whole backstory for an origin for the Scythians is messy and it's convoluted. Uh, and especially because the it's possible that the term Scythian is just kind of a broadish term describing just the steppe peoples in that region during that time. But there was enough cohesion in the culture uh, of the Scythians uh, that we found, um, uh, probably enough to consider them a whole peoples. But it, like a lot of things, it's, it's kind of complicated. And I think part of why it's so complicated is because they were nomadic, right? And they were moving around and there were, there were a bunch of sub-tribes, you know? And, you know, they sometimes banded together and sometimes they didn't. It, it's a little, it's confusing. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's what I always, that's what I always assumed what the Scythians were. They were kind of just like this mysterious uh, nomadic group that was kind of like a catch-all phrase to the people who lived in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess through archaeological finds later, we were able to confirm that, hey, these guys actually had a lot in common, like, culture-wise. Like, you know, yeah. tribes that we found in Siberia have often mm-hmm. a lot of, they have a lot of things in common in places that are maybe maybe closer to the Caucasus. Exactly, um, exactly. So there's there's a, a, a cohesion about them, you know, that, that, makes, that makes it probably more likely that they were, you know, like a cohesive unit of people. Um, but, but again, uh, the, the the troubling part and i don't want to you know spoiler alert uh or anything like that but like the scythians people they just kind of like fizzled out like they just kind of disappeared and you, you, you kind of wish that you had child like you know scythians the chaldeans you know, how yeah. we still have chaldeans you know yeah. have scythians still yeah well maybe we might we'll talk about that in a bit um but uh because we're raising them from the dead no um no uh What's interesting about it is that there wasn't like a war or like an epidemic or like a mass migration that we know about for the Scythians. People just stopped talking about them and they just kind of disappeared, which is really interesting. We'll get to that part later. Um, but, you know, I think the the individual locations for this group of people is unknown because they moved around a lot. Right. But definitely, you know, they ranged from, you know, the, the Danube River, you know, out in the West and in, in, in like the, the Europe, European part of the steppe and Mongolia 
way, way out there, you know, uh, in the Asian part of the steppe, but also down south to like the Iranian plateau, which is more than likely where they come from genetically. Like they're, they're an Iranian, um, Iranian or Persian peoples. Uh, so it, it, the general consensus is that they ranged over an extremely broad territory, which obviously would present, you know, some interesting, uh, variations among, even among the, the Scythian people itself, right? There would probably be like, these are the, you know, Mongolic Scythians and these are the, you know, Danubian, you know, Danubian Scythians and so, but they all spoke roughly the same language apparently. So, well, if you look at a map of like, um, just the ancient empires in, you know, 500 BC or so, like 600 mm-hmm. BC, the, you know, the old, old time, mm-hmm. you'll always see that, you know, everything that's not a civilization is kind of like mapped out as Scythian. Like, oh, <laughs> Every, just everything north of like, you know, uh, yeah, the, the like Sumerian uh, or the everything Acadian north of Greece, yeah. everything no, north of like the Black Sea, just yep. like Scythian. Scythian. Yep, that's Scythian. <laughs> All of this. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it makes sense, though, because that's where a lot of our going back to Herodotus, a lot of our um People who are familiar with with them from from again the Dan Carlin podcast, um, you know Dan, Dan Carlin did a three part series on called King of Kings, right. and it's about the the rise and fall of the Persian Empire essentially. Mm-hmm. So he goes through the rise of Cyrus the Great, and then he goes you know to Xerxes, and then he goes to ultimately the um, the fall with with Alexander the Great conquering right. it. But he talks a lot about like how you know Cyrus the Great's initial clashes with the Scythians, and how Cyrus you know Cyrus the Great's death was actually a result of him fighting a Scythian um, pr- princess, like a Scythian, yep. pr- like a, a female warlord. Yep, Wim- who women poetically mm-hmm. he was trying to marry himself off to to yeah. make some type of an alliance. Yep. And she rejected that, and killed. they went to war, and uh, she poetically killed him on the battlefield. And it, that is not obviously something that is probably there's a lot more myth to it than reality sure. to it. It was but kind there of is a good story, but that's what Herodotus said. Women apparently did fight, and there's been archaeological evidence of like like Scythian female warriors, which is pretty cool, you know. Um, so. There's, there's some elements there. And we do know that, that you know, politics of the time, I mean, shit, politics now, you know, uh, organizes itself around, like, uh, weddings of convenience, you know, to, you know, either to prevent war or to create it in some cases, you know. Um, so, you know, elements of that could be true, for sure. No, I, I think that it was just a convenient story to, to teach something. Because ancient historians, they're... There, there's, there's things that are corroborated from Herodotus that, um, that we can confirm are true. They're like, oh man, Herodotus got something right about you know how you know Scythians that were in current day Palestine or something like that right, as an example. Right. Right. But then they'll say, but then they'll realize, but this was a story that was also being used to teach a lesson. Send a message, teach mm-hmm. a story about irony or something like that. Usually yeah. it's something ironic or something about morals or something that a story that 
kind of humility, you know, so these these types of uh, qualities that they want to instill uh, within their society. So totally, and, uh, that's why there's so much to take with a grain of salt. And with the Greeks, when they looked at people like Cyrus the Great, that's when they looked. They always looked at him favorably, and you know, um, the Persians became corrupted later on by. You know, the, the corruption starts with, like, Xerxes. Like, that's when... I don't know why I went off of that tangent. But However, I think it's relevant to kind of explain who they were or well, how so they were represented at that it, time by that, the that's story. A, that's a good time. point. That's a good point. And I think that that is a pretty good segue to what I wanted to talk about as well. You know, because a lot of what we know about the Scythians is, like, secondhand accounts, right? Like, from Herodotus, etc. Um, or from these stories you know, um, from like, say the Persians, you know, things like that. And oftentimes, you know, they dehumanize the Scythians and, and like the trouble with the Scythians is they didn't write shit down. <laughs> like, so we can't read their firsthand accounts of things. So you know, oftentimes we get this kind of, um, very, um, superficial, uh, description of, of, you know, the Scythians and what, who were the Scythians like, and oftentimes it was very negative and you know, because they were uh, a warring people, or at least, you know, uh, they were they had warriors, right? So uh, I, I think I kind of want to return back to the geography again and talk about the step a little bit more in relation to the Scythians because I think it helps kind of understand who the Scythians were really, you know. So we talked about how that geography plays a big role in the in the types of cultures that spring up, you know. Like I said on the on episodes of China and in this particular step region, like you said, Henry, this this geography really lent itself well to nomadic culture. And particularly animal husbandry, and that that part is pretty important, you know. Um, animal I, husbandry? You mean like I, I, marrying animals? <laughs> we went over this already. <laughs> I don't know. It just sounds like that. Yeah, <laughs> it just sounds like that in English, like animal husbandry. It just sounds like, oh, now they're marrying, now Sheep? they're marrying animals. Yeah, no, that's not that's not it. It's raising animals, basically raising yeah, cattle, sheep, you know, horses, know. things like just, that. It's a funny word. But it's important that that's what they do, or that's at least their primary economic model is animal husbandry, because, you know, like, put it into perspective, this is the idea. The idea was that as the seasons changed, right, you mentioned, you know, that you could go from, you know, uh, uh, from the the, the western part, uh, the European part, to, you know, Mongolia from spring to before winter, right? So it would take you not not a super long time. And so the idea was as the seasons changed, people would move around the range uh, looking for, quote, greener pastures, so to speak, you know? Um, so remember that part of these the areas that these people ranged across, you know, was Siberia, where it's fucking cold as shit, you know? And so they'd go someplace warmer during the winter, uh, and they would come back in the summer months. And oftentimes they would come back because they would just be following the animals that they were hunting, you know, um, because the animals would move back and forth in that same kind of pattern. Um, and so they'd take their, the horses that they would raise and the sheep and the cattle that they would raise. And as they would move back and forth across the steppe, they would interact with and trade with more settled people along the way. Right. And so this influenced pretty greatly, you know, their culture, but definitely their art, uh, a lot, um, for nomadic people, and this is kind of the trouble of being nomadic. There's often, you know, these like goods or, you know, materials that you can't really get your hands on because you're on the move all the time. But on the flip side, there's always an opportunity for you to trade because you have things that other people don't usually have. As an example, furs, you know, uh, you know, leathers, 
these things were in high demand pretty much everywhere. And, you know, a steppe, a grassland is the perfect place to raise animals, right? So they were able to mass produce furs and leathers and hairs and wools and things like that. And these are all things that settled people who don't have a giant grassland to raise all these cattle on, you know, uh, didn't have. So it was pretty mutually beneficial. And also an interesting dynamic, which still kind of goes on today, is that they were trading with, um, at least from the accounts I've saw with them, heard about them uh, trading with the Greeks. They would trade like... um, Mm -hmm. You know, they're raw goods. They're, you know, they're raw materials. Leathers, wools, you know, rope from, you know, uh, horse hair, things like that. But they would trade it with, they would trade it for finished goods. So, yep. like, what the Greeks would give them in return are things like... they um, build them, like, here's a shirt. <laughs> a shirt. <laughs> you know, or here's some armor, you know? Or armor, or swords. Right. Or wine, which is... A, was it, Well, which they was a loved wine. That's, that's actually a... That was a bit of their, um, the, what I was reading is that they they had a really like fetish for wine and they would often like almost bankrupt themselves by giving away all of their wares for more wine. Like that was a big, it was a big, cause you know, they don't sit around and they don't do it. And once they got a taste for it, it was just like. <sighs> what What's interesting though, is that I feel like there's almost kind of like a level, like a spectrum with these, with these ancient cultures. Um, Especially with, like, I feel like there's like more areas that you have like a greater degree of uh, of uh, like Scythian like culture, like the like our Macedonia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not really Greek, or nope. I, I guess you can not argue exactly. all day. You can yeah. argue all day about you know whether Macedonia or Macedonia, or whatever you want to call it, was, was Greek or was it its own thing. Was Alexander the Great Greek or was he Macedonian? Did he hate Greek culture? Did he, you know, you can debate about that all day. But one thing that's not debatable is that they used cavalry up there in Macedonia. They used horses. They used horses and they were exposed to that type of horse Mm -hmm. people type culture. And it was more spread out and less mountainous like it was down in in lower Greece. And they just had greater exposure. It was kind of like a blend a blend of like you know civilized like you know smart sedentary and heavy infantry and stuff like that Mm -hmm. with you know the wildness of of the horse um, people of the horse people combined and you know um you know i think it's what it It, it, what made them so effective for sure and and it it actually worked both ways too right because on the one hand like you said uh the macedonians were definitely influenced by the horse people in that respect you know, you can definitely see so in, in the military uh, warfare style of, of Alexander the Great. Um, but it also worked towards the Scythians, too. One cool bit was that, you know, Scythians loved gold, you know, and gold things. And they used a lot of ornate, you know, gold jewelry and art and a lot of like, like you know, they would make these like uh, olive branch like golden olive branch crowns that looked like like a roman you know headdress but that was actually kind of common among the um among the scythians um and they would adorn their weapons with gold uh and you can see a lot of actual like greek styling in some of the scythian artifacts that have been found in some of these digs and you know there's a lot of debate on where they come from some some of them definitely were probably created by greeks for trade with the scythians you know like as you mentioned like they would often sell them finished products. 
Um, but also there were still there were still some evidence ones of of Scythian artifacts that were just straight up mimicking Greek style, right? So they were actually creating their own ornate, you know, uh, uh, idols and and artifacts and 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 jewelry uh, by themselves, but that mimicked Greek style. So like it, it worked both ways, you know. Um, and their clothing, things like that, you know, we're we're often mimicking Greek styles. Um, and I think the widespread discovery of these types of artifacts really shows you how interconnected the Scythians were with their neighbors. One fun fact that I found out was that some artifacts that showed Scythian styling, or at least can be connected with Scythia, uh, have been found as far as Korea and Japan. Did you know well, that? that makes sense. I mean, that, that sounds, that sounds uh, very believable because yeah. the range of travel that these people lived within stretches from the west towards you know Mancheria. yep Mancheria's right over there by china yeah aren't by korea um it's just wild how far out that gets and like how trade how the scythians you know they they made a small little impact on on those like you know far eastern you know uh um cultures and I think more importantly, though, that these artifacts d- depict the type of culture that the Scythians had. You definitely see a lot of war symbolism. Uh, and uh, Something you'll find a lot is a horse, like a guy riding a horse with a spear or a bow and arrow or something like that. So that was a big part of the Scythian identity, you know, is to be a horse warlord. Um, both inside Greater Scythia and and the, their neighbors thought of them as like horse warlords, and that's obviously a you know product of the geography, right? That's that's how they grew up. That's how they learned how to defend themselves. That's how they, you know, economically how they provided for themselves. Um, but there's also this interesting like big theme of three major symbols that show up, and one of them is a bird of prey. Uh, another one is a horse or some other mammal, especially with like um, hooves or uh, antlers. And the last one would be a wildcat, like a big, like a leopard or something like that. And they're often depicted together uh, as being in conflict with one another. And some uh, put forth the theory that that this type of um, you know, symbolism in these artifacts was symbolic of the three realms, so heaven, earth, and the underworld. And they were constantly in struggle with one another. So, you know, these these artifacts really show you that they're, they weren't just this, um, you know, barbaric, like... Um, uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, uh, cannibal, like crazy warrior people. Like they, they were thinking about like the greater, the the big questions in life. You know, they were philosophizing. You know, they they had a, 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 a you know, a religious and a spiritual, uh, a, a cultural connection with this stuff. So it's you know, looking at their their um their artifacts really kind of it kind of humanizes them at least against the the um the types of ways that their neighbors would often depict them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even the Dothraki, they had their little uh, redeeming spiritual qualities. Mm-hmm. That's true. Or did they? That's a, true. Uh, say a, a Dothraki wedding with only three deaths is a boring affair. <laughs> so I was just going to say, like, you know, all, all of this is, of course, just a theory because the Scythians didn't write shit down. Um, but lots of other people wrote things about them and they left us clues in their artifacts. And so here's some interesting stuff that I learned. Um, so want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, a lot of people seem to believe that they are, you know, very violent horse warriors who are really dope at bow and arrows and maybe they were using poison arrows. I kind of tend to believe that um, just because of the nature of like their animal husbandry and, you know, their, their warfare was, you know, horse warfare. So that makes sense to me. Um, there have been some accounts that shows them to have been mercenaries for the Greeks and oftentimes were acting as elite bodyguards for, you know, high VIP people. Well, that Which, makes sense because if they're not higher if they don't have their own like cavalry regiments down in the city states of mm -hmm. greece and if they want to hire might as well some, import them yeah. might as well import them and yeah i'm sure these guys are looking for work yep I'm sure you i'm sure you can make a pretty good living that down back back in those times if you're serving a, a winning lord. city state yep. getting the be on horse and sack a sack a greek city state Look sounds at all like fun wealth yep but that's probably where a lot of the negative connotations from them come from, too, because, you know, they were like any mercenary is looked down upon. Any sellsword is going to be looked down upon. Right. Because your whole job, you know, is to go somewhere else and, and do the dirty work for someone else. So, you know, the results of that often end up being that, you know, you're going to be your your whole peoples as a whole are going to get, you know, um, uh, your people aren't going to have very nice things to say about your people. You know? Well, no one, no one sold their swords more than Greeks. <laughs> yeah, totally. But like, if we're talking about Greeks here, you know, like the Greeks yeah. would be pointing the finger right back at the horse people. Um, I mean, Greeks were mercenaries in the Persian armies that yep. invaded Greece. Yep, that's true. That's true. Uh, so there's some other accounts that were pretty interesting about how they might have used like hallucinogenic drugs for religious or ritual purposes. Um not a ton of like uh evidence for archaeological evidence for this because like obviously drugs like that like wouldn't have lasted that long <laughs> you know uh for us to have seen it but you know that's interesting um 
there was other claims, and this one is probably bullshit, but uh, there were some claims that they were apparently cannibals uh, and that they used the skulls of their victims as drinking cups, which is pretty metal, but I don't know if that's actually, like, fact. I don't know if that's fact or not. There's not a, not a ton of evidence out there for that. Um, but a few things that we do specifically know for sure um, are... Uh, you know, stuff that we get from their burial mounds that they left behind. So they obviously love horses. We know this for sure. Total equestrians. And like it, they, they loved them enough where they would bury them with their masters. Uh, so the r- rumors of them being like horse masters are definitely true. Uh, you know, we can just assume that from, you know, the way that they revered their horses. Um, they loved getting inked. That's a thing. That's real. Uh, so like all of them, like a lot of the mummies that they've been finding from these people have been just straight up covered in tattoos, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but definitely would have been looked at, I think, especially probably from the Greeks as like a bit of a ta- taboo or whatever, you know, like these weird horse people with their drawings all over the skin and shit like that, you know? It's, um, it's interesting. If you, I love the way I going back to Dan Carlin, but you know, I'm kind of forced to, because he just does such a, he definitely introduced me to these um, historical topics because we don't learn shit about this type of stuff in most historic, most school, <laughs> school in general. So the way that he explains the um, kind of like the evolution of like the Mongolian horde and like the skilled horseback is it's uh, man, I can't. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but his way he, he's like, just imagine generations of horse people training and shooting arrows like (laughs) um and that you know the scythians were kind of like the precursors to the mongolians Mm -hmm. who were the uh i guess the most evolved version of the horse warrior who can just who is just they're so they're basically the horse and the and the person are connected they're basically one person yeah you know what i mean they're they're like extension there's no they're the horse mm-hmm. is an extension of the of the rider, mm-hmm. and he says something along the lines of like a horseback rider back then would be just way more skillful on a horse than the best like horseback rider now. Mm. I believe that. That's all, be, he like, that's all they, he did. Like, that's he, all he had time like, for. Yeah, because just just if that's ingrained into your culture, like living on a horse and being on a horse at all time, mm-hmm. like imagine like the best trick horseback rider who's able to shoot an arrow with his feet, right. and then imagine like a society of that, right? I mean, there, there's some there's some truth to the you know the idea that they were the precursors to people like Mongolians and things like that because, like I said earlier, you know this the Scythians just kind of ended up like phasing out like there was no great war there was no genocide there was no epidemics there's nothing like that people just stopped talking about them and it's it's very likely that smaller tribes within uh you know the greater scythia uh probably you know gained prominence and and you know those peoples were assimilated like specifically the sarmatians which i want to talk about a little bit um they ended up they're one of the the sub uh uh sub scythian tribes and they ended up gaining power uh, and it's possible that just the rest of the Scythians just assimilated to that group, or maybe they all moved. You know, nobody really knows. Um, you know, e- even the more 
interesting bits of this is that there have been some interesting like nationalist pseudo origin stories. Uh, I don't know if you heard this one. You know, well, you know, uh, th- there's this whole like 30 minute documentary that I was watching before this uh, about a theory that's like it felt like a little bit like ancient aliens, to be honest. But it was by like these Russians from like these Russian universities and things like that. And they're basically making the, the case that Russians or at least part of the Russian, you know, uh, heritage is actually just Scythians by another name. Right. Yeah, I've actually heard that as well. Um, right. So I have read stuff about that. There. So there's like a lot. This is really esoteric stuff. I just right. want to just start by saying that. Yeah, like there's be like a very... few people who are like understand who understand who like know about this stuff and read this mm-hmm. stuff, including myself. Like right. I'm not speaking on behalf as an expert. I'm just saying this is a very esoteric type topic, like the topic of like Eurasianist and things like that. Yep. You know, like kind of the schools of thought thought in Russia today. Right. They take root back from like the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, But this kind of relates to like the the Eurasianist where it's like you see there's like a interest in all the countries in like Central Asia and the Eastern sphere banding together. Um, What... I've gathered is that in the 1910s, 1920s, um, this idea emerged that the Scythians were the um, descendants, or no, the Eastern Slavs were the were descendants descended of, the of the Scythians. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of what this philosophy is called Scythianism what this idea kind of centered around was Russia's location of being right. a borderland between the East and West, which gave it a sense of harmony, you know, like they gave this, like this, 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 um, quality of universalism within Russia. Right. And Russian society had a duty to be both to balance, both like European and Asiatic cultures Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like the probably not a great explanation of what this was. Well, but it's the uh, best. No, it's 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 pretty good. And and I don't know if you heard about this one, but I found out through you know reading about the Scythians because, like I said, the 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 Sarmatians eventually kind of superseded the Scythians. Right, they're the ones that came after, uh, and they ruled in the steppe area. But they were mostly on the west side of the steppe, um, in the European areas, and. Uh, there is also a Polish-Lithuanian, you know, almost pseudo-origin story that posits that the Poles and the Lithuanians are actually the direct descendants of the Sarmatians, and that is called Sarmatism. And I want to bring this to you and say that maybe you are a horse person in the same way hey. that I MSC people. <laughs> <laughs> we that figured it great. out, Henry. That's where we come you're from. You're a C person and I'm a horse person. Yep. I'm a C people. I identify and you're a horse more person. as a C person though. I I'm I'm a, I'm a big I love the beach and swimming and stuff. Yeah. Um so I, I d- identify as a C person. I'd like to think of myself as as, as if I could trace my origins back, and if I discovered I was a C person, I'd be like, "Oh, that's fucking awesome!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. Well, being a horse person is pretty cool as well. Yeah. I can. I've rode a horse once in my life. 
like at a bullshit <laughs> ranch when I was like 12. Yeah. <laughs> Only time I've ever been on a horse ever in my life. So it doesn't come natural. <laughs> and I remember having issues getting on it. Like I was like, oh, fuck, I can't get on top of it. Embarrassed. <laughs> and like the rancher was kind of hot and I was embarrassed in front of her. I was like, oh, yeah. man, it's embarrassing. Yeah, it's just a poor excuse for a this hot chick who's teaching me how to ride a horse. Um, well, yeah, dude, this this Sarmatism, like this like ethno-cultural concept, is actually pretty fucking fascinating too. Like maybe we'll have to talk about it in a different episode or something like that. But it's basically like this whole idea that was trying to like galvanize the Polish and the Lithuanian, you know, peoples as like having come from this Indo or Iranic descent, you know, uh, which is fascinating. And, you know, it shows up in like their armor. It shows up in, you know, in the Polish armor, in the Polish like garb of the day, you know, um, like th- there were so many, so many like inroads on that. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it kind of reads a little bit like, oh, um, it's a little culturally co-opting, but at the same time, it kind of makes sense because, you know, they idolized the Sarmat, the Sarmatians as like these like horse warriors and like Polish cavalry is like a thing. You know, like the the Polish cavalry was a, like a like a and and the Russian cavalry is a big thing. Haven't you ever heard how you stopped the the Polish cavalry? <laughs> oh God, here we go. How you just stopped the carousel? <laughs> oh man, apologies. Good. For the it's, Poles a, it's, an old, it's an old school Polish joke. How do you stop? <laughs> how do you stop the Polish cavalry? <laughs> Turn off the carousel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, but yeah, I mean, well, they, like the, the Polish military at the time, you know, they definitely modeled it around like a a strong like horse cavalry, you know. So it's yeah, interesting, you know, very very interesting. Um, so here's another um thing to think about when when thinking about how a lot of this is interpreted in the 20th century, especially during the time of like the rise of nationalism and. Mm-hmm. Um, the periods of like the Soviet Union um, marching westward during World War II. Right. Is that a lot of people, a lot of people like in the Czech Republic for, is a really good example, and Poland right. is a mm-hmm. good example. A lot of these countries on the periphery of Eastern Europe, who are kind of Central Europe, a lot of the countries that now, you know, kind of wanted to get in NATO right away, who, who wanted to get in NATO right away because they did right. not want to get into some type of Warsaw Pact ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them during World War II, a lot, there was there was a lot of propaganda coming out of like the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, not the Czech Republic at the time, who that kind of um, looked at the Soviet Red Army as kind of like this horde. Yep. This, this, this horde that was going to really just conquer everything on their way there and and honestly like i would have hoped to god i was liberated by the united states rather than the soviet (laughs) union like if i'm in that if i'm in that predicament hindsight being 2020 man you are shit out of luck like fuck like yeah the nazis are gone but like Man, I really wish it was the United States that. But got now here. I'm going to, to starve. <laughs> but yeah. Now I'm going to have you know have a secret police monitor me and all this stuff. Um, but there was this sense of 
demonizing the Soviet, the Red Army, as kind of like this vague Asiatic, like, uh, menace threat. So, and, and they would constantly group in, they, they would group in, like, different kind of, like, exotic cultures to kind of play up the threat. So they'd be like, oh, the Mongolians and Georgians, and, right. you know, even though a Mongolian and a Georgian are, are probably couldn't be further apart right um ethnically and you know pro- language linguistically culturally and culturally but they would group them together just to kind of add to that kind of horde mentality right. almost it's, like how herodotus would explain what um the great persian armies would look like on their way to greece you know they'd right. be like oh they'd have like you know tribesmen from africa with you know these horse people, you know, they name like every single culture that existed and there were warriors from it. They kind of had that same uh, um, rhetoric or uh, they kind of propagandized the Red Army the the same way where it was just like this grand Eastern army and they tried to play up the Asiatic part of it um, to make it more... To make them different. uh, To make them more different and oriental and scary Mm -hmm. um, to... To to the west, you know what this uh, really reminds me of, Genghis Khan, Moscow. That song, Moscow, oh. Moscow, <laughs> Moscow, Ruslan is Sanchunislan. Dude, because like if you look at the like the main like dancer guy, singer, whoever he is, right? He has kind of like that like more Mongol look to him. But if you look at the periphery, the like Genghis Khan as the group. You know, when you're watching this, these you know, music videos and all the music that they make, they kind of represent that meme, you know, because each of them have a different look to them. You know, like one of them looks like this, like blonde, like, you know, uh, like very Slavic looking woman. And then like the main dancer guy looks very like, like he could be the horseback rider guy. You know what I mean? And they, they have all this like, they kind of try and in, in a meme way represent all of the different, you know. Uh, looks and phases of, of Russian culture. That is that is interesting. Um, something else I've actually read about the Scythian. There's I, I can't I forget where I read this, but there's uh, something to be played about Scythians, or there's like a theory that the Scythians def- culture defeated the Mongolian horde. Like it was like a Scythian culture that I've heard that before. Um, I don't know. Oh, Have you ever heard anything like that? Well, I know that they were um, that they did uh, fight against um, uh, 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 not the Khans. Uh, it was um, fuck. Who's the horse lords that they? It fought? wouldn't have been the actual Scythians because they had ceased to exist by no, the time the, that Mongols. No, died, I, and I'm talking about the, the actual uh, the Scythians. The Huns? No, not the Huns. Yes, yes. Oh, it was the Huns? The Hun, but uh, there's a specific Hun. The Attila the Hun? Attila the Hun, thank you. But yeah, the Huns are another example of that what that step those step people that just kind of uh moved. Europe has been invaded so many times. There's been so many different invasions of Europe, which makes it just this really, really kind of uh hodgepodge of different like identities and cultures and, and things like that. Because of just the pure and not, I'm not even talking about like the more recent invasions in our history, like mm-hmm. ancient, ancient invasions, like in the very, very prehistory world. There's been so many different migrations into Europe, um, which makes it 
you know, I think like very unique. Um, now here's something else going back to, I'm probably going to ramble. By the way, it was, it was the Sarmatians, but as you know, the Sarmatians were the, you know, the, the, the folks that came from the Scythians or at least the ones that superseded them after a while, but same, same idea. Scythians Um, fought, uh, Sarmatians fought the Attila the Hun and beat them back. There's another, another thing in Czech culture, just, just to go back to that, um, there's also kind of like this sense of pride that the, the, the Czechoslovakians were the ones that beat out the Mongols. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everyone wants to take credit for something like, oh, it was us right. who beat them. It was our ancestors who be defeated, who expunged the Mongols out of Europe. Um, it's all, all interesting stuff. What else do you have to add? Um, well, I mean, just kind of going back to the original like article that we were talking about earlier, you know, all of this information that we've been talking about have been basically coming out of the archaeological evidence that we're getting out of these Scythian burial tombs. And, um, you know, these are these are all in the, you know, uh, Russian and Ukrainian areas. And they're the burial sites are called kurgans or castles in Russian. Um, and, you know, what, what I think what's important about this is that there is this. Well, first of all, the Siberian permafrost is able to, you know, keep well preserved all of these mummies and things like that, which is, you know, thankfully is why we're able to learn so much new stuff about it. But, you know, it brings us to the original topic, you know, uh, that Russia's could be cloning the Scythians for some weird ass reason. Very likely, you know, this is just a bullshit, you know, clickbait article. But, you know, what I think is I find fascinating about about the whole situation is that the Scythian peoples, right, uh, inhabited the same land as what what we would now uh, understand the Russians and the, and the Slavic people generally you know, to inhabit, and they kind of just disappear, and they also pop up in in this like you know ethnic mythos of the Slavic people in that area. So you know, I find it fascinating that that you know in this moment where we are legitimately you know uh, having you know, some tensions, you know, with Russia, especially on the Ukrainian border, that that we're now getting an opportunity to revisit, you know, their history and and like think about and learn about, you know, the the potential places where they came from, you know, because I think it's you know, it's it's very interesting that, you know, the 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 whole region is a bit of a tinder pot right now. Yeah, and um, have I think, a shared origin, you know, and, and what. The goal is on one of our next episodes. Uh, we want to do. We want to go back and forth. Um, you know, tackle modern stuff as well as hit the historical stuff as well. But I think the next logical step to explain some of the differences and, and just like an overall kind of historical context that I think most people should know about this area of the world is, is probably going into the Kiev, the Kievan Rus. Um, yep. which is the first state that emerges in that area, the first like mm-hmm. s- place that we would consider a state, which emerges right. around um, you know, 800, 900 A.D., so a thousand years right. after the Scythians are, 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 have ceased to exist. And, Long gone. You no, know, right. there's an mm-hmm. argument of who they are and what their combination are, but essentially it's like an, you know, the Vikings, it's Norse pe- people from Sweden and people from— Finnish people. Finnish yeah. people and all these different people, you know, collectively create— a But maybe some Scythians. 
and maybe some Scythians, but I think that is a topic that we need to hit um, on another episode because that will open up a whole new can of worms. Uh, I have... I just want to just warn everyone to watch out for clone armies, and maybe we should start cloning our own armies to, yeah. to combat that. Maybe we should start cloning like like Comanche or something. Comanches, like that, you know? Ooh, yeah, that would be interesting. Ass. Yeah, that would be a good episode of Deadliest Warriors, the show that we were talking about the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Clone the Comanches, Comanches and fight the Scythians. Who'd win? Yeah, let's let's. Well, who's our who was the deadliest Native American tribe in North America? Was it I mean I think I think any of our tribes would probably lose though because we don't they didn't have iron weapons at that time. Mm, that's true. That's true. Well, I mean we'd have to even the playing field, right? Wouldn't we? Like because you wouldn't put like, you know, a, an American soldier today against, you know, uh, a horse warrior because the American soldier would win because they have guns. Right. So like if you were going to fight two two people from different time periods that have different like technologies, wouldn't you just have to either give the the um, Native Americans some, you know, iron weapons or perhaps maybe increase their numbers? I don't know. Who knows? To make it a fair fight. Yeah, it'd be an interesting uh, TV show concept. Um, All right. That's all everything I had to say. Yep, same. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks again for uh, joining us for another episode of Bro History. If you enjoyed the content, you can get more content going to our Patreon, a Patreon uh, slash Bro History. Uh, you can join for just a dollar a month. Um, extra content. Um, join our Slack community where we all uh, communicate. And then another thing that's really helpful to help us is to rate and review the podcast if you are listening on Apple. The number one way to grow, the majority of our listeners, ninety about 95% of our listeners come through Apple. Um, one of the reasons why we get so many listens on Apple is because you guys rate and review the podcast, and it really does help us grow. It helps tremendously. So if you're listening on Apple, go to the star thing in the top right-hand corner. Go to rate and rate the podcast. Go to five-star review. Um, write us a nice little review. Say, hey, you guys are a great podcast, and I appreciate you guys, and I'd like to tune in every week. You can write that, or, hey, you can even write, hey, you guys can go rotten hell. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe whatever the, floats maybe your the former. I may disagree with you, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. Yeah, <laughs> but but definitely do say it, and you know we're we're coming really close to that 500 mark, which is awesome considering where we started. Uh, so we really appreciate the the um. Yeah, get us the, the 500 reviews if you're listening to us. Um, we're right there. All right, um, enjoy your um. Sunday. This is when this we're recording on Saturday. This should be released on Sunday morning. Um, Have a wonderful week, and uh, we will see you next week. Peace. Peace.
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. 